I wanted to take some time here and talk about how you, the listeners, can support Feeding Curiosity. I've always believed in providing more content to whoever listens to this of value than what you'd ever pay for. I don't like the idea of having to sponsor myself with products I don't use or believe in. If it's something I use and believe in, then sure, I will talk about it and I will do everything I can to do that. And I've done that on this podcast before. Not sponsored, but I've talked about many products that I believe in. But in the aims of choosing to create a new model that I believe in and that we should all be striving for is breaking ourselves away from the subsidized model that ads provide. And so with that, we have turned on the uh, anchor.fm support structure, which allows you, the listener, to subscribe to our content at the level of your choosing. That is either a 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 a month. Meaning that you, the listener, and me, the creator, can be transparent about how much value you see in our content. And by doing so, that allows me to have more resources to ever increase the quality of this content. And that's not to say I won't be doing this anyways, but it breaks me out of the loop of having to worry about those things. Because there is a lot of time that goes into this podcast. But I love it. And I hope that by you choosing to support the podcast, you know how much I care about the quality of this content. And so with that, everyone, thank you all for listening. And I hope you enjoy. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity Podcast. As always, I am Eric, your main point of contact. I am also joined by my brother, Nick, and one of my friends, Joe. Hey, how's it going? So today was thrown in randomly. He texted me and was like, hey, let's do a podcast. It worked out because in part we, I don't know how many, is this your first one? Is this the first? This is the second second one. one. Yeah. Okay, so... We all used to do the bro pod, winging it podcast together. And now that I've left for school again, it's been difficult, but this yeah. is a chance for, for hardware. Um, <laughs> yeah. For, yeah, that's, this is a chance for us to continue the conversation regardless of my location. <laughs> yep. We're trying out some new hardware or software rather here to record this via discord channel. And so far it actually seems to be working out. So I'm actually pretty excited. Yeah, this is actually this is going pretty well. Like, I'm surprised. We've been talking for a little bit already, but the audio sounds good on my end, and it's cool. I haven't used Discord before, so this is a first for me. Yeah, definitely. All right, so do you guys want to give a little bit of backstory on yourselves, besides the disclaimer in the beginning? Nick, you can go first. I've already talked enough. <laughs> <laughs> sure. As previously stated, I am Eric's brother. By trade, I'm a video production specialist, but I do anything related to graphic design and graphics and photography. So I suppose I'm the resident visual guy. You definitely are. The yeah, man, the myth, the legend, when it comes to all things video. I'm Joe Joukowsky. I am a student at the... Yeah. Hi, Joe. Like, hi. <laughs> I'm going to the University of Michigan right now doing biopsych, cognition, neurology, and a minor in philosophy. So I'm interested in ideas which is why these podcasts work. <laughs> exactly. That's also why I wanted to do it. Cause like with Nick, he goes to school at Columbia, which is a graphics arts school. And you going to university of Michigan, like 
it just fits perfectly into the name of the podcast. It's just learning all new things. Yeah, there's a lot of creative people in this little chat room right now. Mm-hmm. Did you take the, the big five? Yes, I did. It's actually one of the most interesting things I've ever done, to be honest. You were high in openness, right? I am high in many things. Hold on. I actually have it saved. <laughs> I'm totally proud. <laughs> <laughs> so, so me and another vet who are in this, in this philosophy class, we were talking about Descartes, and Descartes had this mind-body idea where they were distinct from each other. Yeah. So like the body exists, it's its own separate entity from the mind. And the mind is something like soul or consciousness or whatever. The the thinking portion of the I think, therefore I am. Yes. And one of the criticisms that was leveled at him for his distinction was how does an immaterial thing influence a material thing causally? So how can the mind move the body if it has no material substance to do? Well, that's interesting. Which is to say it can't, <laughs> like if it has no matter to yeah. move it. You could maybe make the argument that it's a force, but even gravity is a force, but gravity, re gravity relies on mass. So it still needs matter to be a force. And it's an empirical argument because you can observe it. Right. Oh, yeah. So he can't make a causal connection. And what his rebuttal was mm -hmm. that there are animal spirits, which are something like a fluid-like substance that lives in the pineal gland that acts as an intermediary between the two. Whoa, what? Which is to say it's bullshit. <laughs> just spewing BS because we had no... Because then you could just move the argument to, okay, so how does immaterial animal spirits influence material pineal gland? Yeah, you just I... shift the problem. <laughs> but me and a buddy of mine kept making the joke where, oh, shit, dude, pass those animal spirits, man. <laughs> like, what is the mind-body <laughs> distinction, dude? <laughs> you just like, take it to the umpteenth level? Yeah, it's exactly that. I'm like, how much did he fucking smoke? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. I, I have to honestly like digging into deeper, like with all these like great thinkers of back then, mm -hmm. philosopher kings and all that type of stuff. It makes me right. wonder how much of the way, like the thoughts they had were induced by other means. Yeah, there's some linkage theoretically. I, haven't, I don't know enough about it really, but uh, Descartes took shrooms and that, what is it? M DMT or something is in or the MDMA, pineal gland. Maybe? And I don't remember. I think it was DMT because that's okay. the actual hallucinogen. Is in the pineal gland and he knew that or something. But it's all a bunch of speculative. Mm. Who knows? Maybe he was on mushrooms. I, I have no idea. But I don't think you could say reliably that <laughs> Definitively the reason he came either. up with the pineal gland is because somehow he had some knowledge of the brain that nobody else did. And yeah. that chemical was active in that part of the brain, which, yeah, okay. So. It's interesting. But there's a lot of, you hear about that kind of stuff. What did I hear? Uh, Dostoevsky would have really intense epileptic seizures. Oh. That he would say that, I think it was something like, he felt like that all the information of the heavens was opening up to him right before he'd have the seizure. Which is interesting too, because I'm reading, still reading. Oh, there's Karamazov and there's a character in that had those seizures. So he must have been pulling from his life a little bit. The idea was, it, it, what's implied there is that he is opening almost in like a hallucinogenic sense, like becoming hyper creative as a re response to whatever is happening in the within the epileptic seizure. Does that make sense? I'm not yeah. explaining, but it's 
acting as the same mechanism as psilocybin does with right to be able to work through whatever those whatever brain malfunction or miswiring does taking yeah. place yeah that whatever's happening is triggering some sort of creative development it's speculative but very it's interesting but... maybe you can't say it specifically about dostoevsky as a case study but you could say since we do know from the research coming out of uh, johns hopkins mm-hmm. that psilocybin increases openness dimension by one standard deviation permanently Whoa. so that's really? a so that can take you from so dead center of the mean to 65 is it 65 i can't remember what the standard deviations are looking at us a normal distribution curve. Okay. And it's, uh, so if you're zero on that curve, meaning mm-hmm. that you're right dead center 50% of the population in creativeness, it'll put you 84, 84.1 percentile. Holy cow. That's a huge jump. So you jump from 50 to 84. That's a huge statistical difference in where you yeah. land on that creative. Just from a mental standpoint of being able to see the world differently. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? That's a huge leap. There's diminishing returns. So not diminishing returns. Exactly. That's not the right phrase. But (laughs) if you're at that 84% and then you do it, then you take psilocybin, then you only jump 13.6%. So it's not the full 30. Like it's smaller and smaller. So if you're super, super creative and you take it, it's not going to affect you that much. But if you're not very creative, it's, you're going yeah, to Yeah, if you're at the outlier end of the spectrum, you you can unlock yeah. potential, basically. Yeah, and it, I, just, and it seems, too, that if you're really uncreative, let's say you're in the 0.1% range of, le- like, not creative at all. Like, yeah. you are way low in openness. That's only going to increase you, like, 2.1%. Wow. So that, that's like nothing. So that means that spectrum, it's very little effect. So if you're, basically, if you're on the outlier sides of either side, it's not going to help you as much either way, which makes sense from a statistical point of view anyways. Yeah, and I'm hesitant to call it help either just because... Right, yeah. <laughs> right, you don't... It doesn't necessarily... Just because you're more open doesn't necessarily mean that's even a positive thing. Mm. It could be detrimental if you're... I mean, being creative is difficult, right? Like you might have an avenue to be creative, especially if you, maybe if you don't, if you're not naturally creative and you're just not used to having a routine where you act expressively, then increasing that creativity dimension is going to be, it might not be a positive thing because you don't know what your outlet thing. is. One thing that is interesting, speaking to creativity and how to unlock that idea, I had recently just watched a TED Talk given by a researcher at Stanford. And... They were able to find definitive research that showed that if you walk, it actually makes people more creative. Just if you walk while generating ideas. I thought that was interesting too. It was a pretty brief TED talk. I'm sure there's the research paper published that would go into detail as to why that is the case. Mm -hmm. But just based off of the experiment that they did and how they compared it and such, they were able to show definitive evidence that just by walking around as you're trying to generate ideas, mm-hmm. it can help spur that creative thinking. I thought that was interesting just from my perspective in the sense that many creatives work in offices. So if you're sitting behind a desk the whole time and if you're stuck that way, maybe you do need to have that sort of physicality to the job. 
Does it help you? Do you notice that you're maybe more creative when you take photos when you're out and moving? Photo from a photo side, it, it, that's more of like an exploration sort of thing. I feel like it, naturally myself, I'm probably not very creative. I, I like my numbers and my order. But the longer I stay within the action, the, the more and more I start to open it up. So it could be just from a personality psych perspective, it could be that you are creative because I, I think of you a creative person now to what degree i don't know but you're a designer too but right. an orderliness is is not a how do you say it? they're not contradictory things you can be both orderly and the only downside to that is that your orderliness or conscientiousness specifically or more generally really can restrict your creativity because you become rigid in what you're willing to explore, maybe self-critical, things like that. Right, yeah. And definitely the both of you, I, I think, are very technical thinkers. Yeah, And absolutely. that could be... Are you high in conscientiousness, Wenzel? Let me double check. My guess is low in orderliness, high in industriousness. Uh, high industriousness, orderliness, moderately high. For both, actually. Consciousness, moderately high as well. <laughs> okay, so that makes sense. The only so the outliers for me, just so you can get a broad agreeableness, I'm right in the middle. Compassion, I'm twenty five percent, and then extroversion, I'm actually in the middle. And then the one that's really low for me is neuroticism and volatility. I'm very low in both of those, in under ten percent. But as for the walking thing, I've finished reading a book, Tribe of Mentors by Tim, and there was a thing. There was one of the questions was. The when you become unfocused or frustrated or what do you like, what do you like to do? That's the question. And a lot of the answers was that some like they would take a breath and they would just take a walk for like five minutes. And then they would after the walk, they would sit back down or whatever they were doing and get back to it. And that would completely change their like mode, basically, just after taking that short little walk. And it's crazy that would reshape or rewire your brain to be able to. Yeah. Get back your focus. One thing that this particular one thing that this particular researcher had pointed out, however, was that this isn't like a cure-all. It's not like uh if oh I'm in a rut, I can't think creatively right now, I'm gonna go walk and suddenly I'm super creative. It was like an augment to it. So if you're in that zone, it'll just help you out and broaden your reach there. I wonder if it applies to like physical activity in general. I feel like it doesn't have to necessarily be walking or maybe because I, I get a lot of good thinking done when I'm at the gym, but yes. I'm not like or, running or anything. Or I'm not even really walking that much. I'm like pick up the weight, put it I back mean, down. A lot of the times <laughs> it's like getting out of your mind and into your body is a huge way to kickstart anything. I would also argue that maybe it also isn't necessarily tied to physical action. Like I don't have to move my body, but if I'm am, I'm moving or like my scenery is changing. So I found myself coming up with lots of great ideas just sitting on the train and staring out the window because I'm just looking at all kinds of different things and different shapes and different textures. And those ideas just show out just because of what I'm seeing. So maybe it's like a continual exposure to different stimuli enables different creativity ah, that's tough i don't know how to call it so it's something it's like, a, like it's like a dullness of your scenery. Things. you're seeing all these different things happening they're all offering up new information to you 
And then yeah. you have the ability to pull out what you want from that information and that enables the creative process. That sounds closer to the idea, yeah. That seems accurate. Um, just so I can have the documentation so you guys know, her name is Marilee Apezzo, O-P-P-E. She is an instructor in medicine at Stanford's Prevention Research Center. Okay, and she's the one that did the TED Talk. She's the one who did the TED Talk, yeah. Interesting. Cool. Was that new this week or? It came out like last week, I think. Okay, so it's relatively new. So head over to TED. Go watch that TED Talk. Yeah. Cool. It was released January 11th, so not necessarily super new, but. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. That's a neat thing. There's actually a course here that I really want to take that one of the advanced level psychology courses and the professor that teaches it is one of the most like high rated professors at the university mm-hmm. and it's all on creativity. The whole oh, thing wow. Is, it's, is it a psychology course? Yeah. Whoa. That sounds so interesting. I'm like, I'm like, first off, fuck yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's okay. So I have to wait, what, like a year or more before I can take that course? Uh, that's, that's so rough. And you're like, oh, that sounds so interesting. But dang it, prerequisites. <laughs> I know. I have to take a couple of gateway courses, which are, I'm trying to remember what they are. Behavioral neuroscience and cognitive psych that I have Ooh. to get done. And I have to do those next semester. Otherwise, I'm a little fucked because those are prerequisites for pretty much everything else in my major. Yeah, I'm taking one of them now, which is the developmental psych course. Yeah. But there's an option. So I could could have taken like developmental or social or... There's like a gender and race one or something. There's a, oh, what was it? Like abnormal? Maybe it was abnormal. I don't know. I've got the list right here. Personality. That's the other one. Personality site. I wanted to do that one, but it wasn't open when okay. I was applying. So I was like, womp, womp. Developmental is fine, though. A lot of cool stuff. We're, cool. It's neat, too, because we, we're touching on Freud a little bit. Erickson. I like Erickson. He's interesting. There's been like some really, that's what we're getting into now is post like infancy. So like year one plus to like not quite childhood yet where they're not like not past toddlers. So year three is probably where we're at right now. Yeah. But you can, it's really cool because you can actually see, you can see the sphere of understanding in the child developing as they go along, like you can see what kind of information they know how to process. So it's like in the beginning, the infant doesn't have object permanence. So they base it. That's where peekaboo is. So peekaboo works because they don't have object permanence. Oh, that's weird. I I have to define object. So it's basically seeing something and recognizing that when you can't see it, it's still there. So when an adult puts their hands over their face, and then shows their face again and covers it back up. What the baby sees is nothing. There's a face there, nothing. It doesn't recognize the face remains at that same place, even when the child can't see it. Yeah, they can't conceptualize the idea of having a body yet. Exactly. So even before that, but there's another thing that you can notice. And the reason the child laughs is because they have, they have what's it called? It's social smiles. So social smiles are non-reflexive. Okay. So if I start from the beginning, so when you have the smallest sphere of understanding is just basic emotions and reflexes, basically. So the basic emotions are you know, happiness, fear, sadness, these kinds of things, but they're all reflexive. So it's only as a response to their own individual standing. So it's, let's say the child is, it sees something, a really bright stimuli, and it makes the child scared. 
and then it cries because it's afraid and sad, right? So those yeah. are emotions that are reflexive, not even necessarily of the environment so much as just something that's unfamiliar. So they're playing off the environment, but they can do it with themselves too. So like a child can be surprised by seeing their own hand uh-huh. because they're not aware <laughs> of their own body. They yeah. have no real understanding of their own body. So you see in the beginning that they're really small spheres. They don't, they understand themselves. They're literally like Descartes, I think, and that's about it. They're the, <laughs> they're the mind itself with no real understanding of the mechanisms of their own body. And then they step out from that. And then that's when they have the more awareness of their environment. They start to have this, the ability to recognize the peak, like when the adult does peekaboo and they're smiling when they're doing it. They're mm-hmm. indicating non-verbally to the child that that this is a game, that this is fun, this is something to be happy about. Yeah. So that's the first time you can see in that game that the child is witnessing the parents. It's like they finally understand that there is some social thing to be read there. There is some communication coming in. So they have the first awareness of the world outside themselves. So it's like, only the mind and the body, the mind and the body and external stimuli, then it spreads out more. The mind, the body, external stimuli, and then it starts to slowly become others. So they can slowly after that, I think it's... That's really interesting, considering you have to start with yourself and then build up this like information network of, oh, wait, that's me. And then you can register that other people are there too. Yeah, that's ex- you're right. That's exactly what it is. Because <laughs> literally after that time, like six to eight weeks, in, between six to eight weeks and t- 18 to 24 months, they can start social referencing. That's where they understand communicative emotion. Oh, wow. So they see you smiling and they understand that you're happy because you're smiling. And then they have the point where they start modeling. So they see your behavior and then they can start modeling behavior. And if they can do that because they start to understand that you exist and that you're a thing that they can enact. You become an abstract, right? And it's in the 18 to 24 month period range, it, what it looks like to me is that it's, in the, it's a creation of symbolic thinking. It's that they now have the, ab- they have the self-awareness, they have this abstract self, mm-hmm. then they have the, the world, and then they have the abstract view that they just defined. So they have this thing that they can look at and they can mimic now. They can model your, the symbol of you and then map it onto themselves. Wow, that's super interesting. And at the same time, to reinforce this, self-conscious emotions emerge. So the, for the first time, they'll feel pride, shame, embarrassment, guilt, because what they realize is they see you, then they recognize that you see them, and now they recognize what they look like through your eyes. So they can go, oh, that looks embarrassing. I feel embarrassed. Like, I trip. <laughs> and I know what tripping looks like. If I was them. So that when they me. like, when they start learning to walk, they cry afterwards because they feel embarrassed probably maybe. So it's all happening. Walking and moving is happening earlier than that. So oh, okay. that's, yeah. So it's, but they're simultaneous. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest mistakes that like Piaget made, and I think Freud made too. Yeah. Was that their stages. He had, they had both really defined stages. Okay. Like very like hard time limits or durations. So exactly. Yeah. Like this amount of time equals this period. This amount of time equals this period. But it's really, it's a feedback loop essentially. Right. Exactly. Every, everything's process. a feedback loop. So it's gradual. So like the child will actually start learning how to interact better with the world by interacting with the world, oh. which makes perfect sense. 
So as the child starts to, like for vision, here's a really good example. So vision is the worst part, the most undeveloped part when the child's born. Oh, wow. Like can't, can barely I, see. I like would never have thought of that. Yeah, like straight up. Think about it too, because what's the one thing that they definitely don't use in the womb? Their sight. Yeah. They nothing to see. Their nose. The eyes are, remain in. Oh, yeah. They're stuck inside of a womb for nine months. They don't need yeah. to see anything. <laughs> they can hear things. That makes sense. Can't see anything. It's pitch black. You're right. It, do- it doesn't help you. <laughs> First time they open their eyes is when they're in the hospital. So what happens is they come out really undeveloped visually. But the thing that spurs that visual development is when they start crawling. So they'll start crawling and then spatial development and being able to see, what do you call it? Like distance, like the distances from one thing to another. Yeah. You know, okay. recognize. That happens once they start crawling and being able to walk and move. And it's called, or technically it's like telescoping vision, right? Uh, there's a less technical term <laughs> that I, for some reason I can't or touch binocular. on. binocular? Yeah, no, <laughs> but it's, whatever it is, it's escaping me, but it's a really odd like yeah just distance right being able to judge distance and they figured that out because they had um this really cool setup where they had this patterned like table that they walked on and then beneath the table was the same pattern so the child would walk or or crawl on the table and then there was a certain point where the like second half of the table was glass but the pattern continued underneath it oh so that the only so if you don't depth perception so if you don't have depth perception, <laughs> you wouldn't recognize that the lower pattern and the upper pattern that you're actually crawling on aren't a continuation of the same thing. So one's yeah. actually lower than the other. So when you have depth perception, you go, oh, shit, there's a fall there. And then the children that are more developed will stop and not go over onto the glass part of the, the table. But the children that aren't developed will just keep going because they can't tell that the ground yeah, is farther like, away than the table It doesn't matter. Itself. That's super interesting. So it's fucking cool. So you can, I can literally see the world getting bigger in the conceptual mind of the child. And it gets to the point where like attachment can develop because they can, they can have, they can associate comfort and certain feelings with a specific individual that they can represent. And then there's this idea that comes later called the internal working model, which is the idea that this happens like after two years and then onward. So in some sense, you're still doing it as an adult, but it's specifically through the parents initially, okay. which is that your parent, you are two separate entities that have the in, a bond. And that bond is the internal working model. And it's a representation mm-hmm. of your relationship within. So you can see how now you have not just the mind and the body and the external world and then other individuals who you model, you have a relationship between those individuals and now you can form your own mind that initial connection and initial eternal working model end up representing and aiding in all future relationships. So if you have a firm internal working model that you can develop when you're an infant or at least like a toddler, two years old, then you learn to employ that same working model on other relationships in the future. Huh? That's super interesting. And that kind of just makes sense with the like developmental, like how people unconsciously mimic their parents as they get older mm-hmm. because the first thing you have the ability to mimic from are those who you meet first and you can't help but meet your parents first you're well, yes. 99% of the time at least you're nailing it so Erickson considered the first year to be 
a that there he thought of things as like having primary psychosocial conflicts that had to be resolved. So these are two different things that if you find a like reconciliation, then you go one way or you go the other way. So in the first year, it's trust versus mistrust. And if oh. you develop that understanding, lays a foundation for all future relationships. So if you're an infant and your adult, your parent teaches you with neglect, then you'll form a mistrust of all other people because your initial reaction that sets that neurological foundation is now built its structure under the presupposition that you can't trust people, that they will neglect you. Wow. And that will, you can, that will literally fuck up your whole life. Right. Yeah. Like you're just screwed <laughs> from insane. that point forward. <laughs> and it gets, in, it's strange because I think you can definitely like work with that. Like it's not a death sentence. It's just a hard wall to break through. Yeah, it's tough. Think about it just from a brain point. Right. So if you're, this isn't going to be accurate, but it works for the metaphor. So let's say that your brain is just a metric fuck ton of unconnected neurons, right? Yes. And the paths that stay are the paths that fire together, wire together. So let's say the, the neurons that fire are the ones that signal neglect. Okay. So if those are the first ones to fire, they now have the most opportunity in their life to have fired the most because they've made for a long period. So now it's, they're thinking neglect, and then for the rest of their life, if they continue to think neglect, that connection is going to be more how you, like concretized than any other structure because it's been around long. So just from a neurological sense, it makes it works. So basically, uh, don't treat your infants like shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just finished the whole don't abuse your children because they're the most malleable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the earlier and it's the same thing with like teratogens which are basically a blanket concept of just bad shit for kids while they're in the womb mm-hmm. <laughs> basically so like smoking for example okay. and the earlier they're exposed the more damage it does because they're developing it's the same concept outside the womb that makes sense you know what i mean same thing it just has more time to reverberate its negative consequences outward oh that makes sense so, so it's like a ripple effect, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I don't, that's just, that's a good way to put it. It's just a ripple effect, not just because the consequences are so heavy. I mean, yeah, there's, there's more, there's definitely, everything is more nuanced the deeper you go into it. But from a top level view, this makes sense. So are you going to be able to do any sort of like studies then? Not specifically about this, but like just in general. Oh, like research? Yes. Yes, I don't know when it will be. For almost definitely my senior year, I'll be doing research. What kind of research, I don't know. And how intense or whatever it'll be, I don't really know. So Mm -hmm. if one of my requirements for this degree is to do research. So yeah, that makes sense. Because instead of having an internship, you have to do some sort of... I should ideally do like a summer internship too. Yeah. Especially if I'm going for PhD. Just because, <laughs> guess what? Be necessary because PhD applicants are all going into research. Like that degree is for. Right. So if you're competing against people to get into that program, you better have something under your fucking belt. <laughs> yeah. Plus, whoever you probably get as a like intern can help you gear toward a research project. Yeah. So the really cool thing would be if I can get into the program, then my senior year, I 
have one class that lasts the whole year instead of two different research courses. And then I write a thesis. Oh, wow. That's like a full on thesis in my undergrad. Now, in a perfect world, I could actually get that thesis published, which would be fucking dope. So like in a peer reviewed journal, basically. Exactly. Now that is rare. Right. To say the least. That's rare for an undergraduate thesis to get published. It has to be above and beyond. If I can work in a lab and help people out and maybe be an intern or whatever, it's not unreasonable to be like a secondary listed author. Yeah, that doesn't sound reasonable. Where you're basically uh, listed on there. Is, yeah, exactly. Now, I don't know that there's a technical term for it. Like I think it could be like fifth level author or something. Or I designate it in certain ways based on your position. Mm. Anything like that, that'd be cool. That'd be helpful. Absolutely. That'd be awesome. <laughs> All those cool things. There's so many studies out there. I'm reading the talent code right now and they just talked about, so basic or not talent code, culture code. Sorry. But basically they talked about one of them was how cultures basically point toward a purpose. So to give cues to people inside of whatever it is. So the one, it was actually a study of, from a psychologist. She went into this restaurant in New York and was like, how do these people get all of this stuff to do what they do so well to make it feel like home? Like that was what their like thing they're known for. Mm-hmm. And so she talked to the owner and she's, yeah, all you got to do is you have to work here for six months to be able to understand what we do here. And so that was like her thesis, basically. To be able to like identify what the cultural psychology of what this group of people so was. She went to, did she end up working there then? For- yeah, she worked there for six months and then was able to do her basically final project through this, through that research. It was a really cool idea. Like stuff like that. You can do just about anything and just and that's now used in this book. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, I've got some ideas of what I'd kind of like to do research on. I don't know if they have I don't think Michigan has Nethology Lab, but that's kind of what I want to do. What does that do? So that's evolutionary behavior, basically. Okay. So how behaviors influence by evolution in relation to evolution and all that. A lot of it's animal research. That makes so sense. So primates, things like that. So that's part of why I don't know if specifically they have that lab. They might have an evolutionary psychology lab, but I'm not. I got to look it up. You know? Yeah. I got to find out. I can look it up too. I'm sure they have listed somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So whatever those that I could work at would be pretty sweet. Here we go. So they got, oh Jesus, they got a lot. (laughs) You've opened up the rabbit hole. Yeah, they got uh, biopsych labs, multiple, clinical science, cognition, cognitive neuroscience, development, gender and feminism, personality and social, and then regular social. Okay, so basically all the main... The key ones you'd expect to see and then a few other more specialized ones. Yeah. Oh, okay. Evolutionary social psychology. So maybe I could do something. That'd be cool. Sounds like right now you have an open door to do whatever you really want to do. Shit. If I want to (laughs) do, let's see, psycholinguistics. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Language effects thinking or how language expresses thinking probably something like that mind machine and math whoa right now i've been reading about brain machine interfaces on waitbutwhy.com and oh my god so every one of his posts basically go down to the nitty-gritty of everything and i just finished like understanding the parts of the brain (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like he uses a scale of the brain is 
if you were to scale it up a thousandfold, it would be a huge napkin that was like three or four city blocks wide. And if you overlaid it over the street block with Madison Square Garden, the entire volume of the brain would fit inside of Madison Square Garden. And there's each cubic meter is as complex as the entire thing as itself. So it's like ridiculously complex. I know for a fact that it's the most complex thing that we. Yes, it's <laughs> it's just mind boggling. And then to see how we interface with the brain right now seems utterly rudimentary. <laughs> like the, the some of the best and like fine tunable things outside of like the ones everybody knows is like MRI and EEG. Like to get to fine points of the brain, like looking at singular neurons firing. It's like you make these microscopic electrodes that you basically pierce inside your brain to that are so small. They're just there's like microns width <laughs> and they pick up the electrolytivity of the brain. It's it's just so insane. And to even imagine like one putting that in your brain is touching your brain and it like gross. opened your head. It's just crazy. And the fact that we have to make it that small to even get any discernible information, because otherwise this, the analogy he uses for EEG is say you're outside of a baseball stadium and you're like listening to the crowd. That's what it is in like a particular area. <laughs> that, that's so that's how these things are. It's just crazy. And what like, website was this? Waitbutwhy.com. Wait, but why? Yeah. Huh. He's a, oh, got it. Wait, but why? Yes. Okay. yes. <laughs> he, he does super long form blog posts in very complex topics that distills them down into somewhat easy digestible content because they're very long or they can be. But I naturally I enjoy these things. <laughs> I could recommend a book to you, but I haven't gotten to one. I haven't gotten into it so i don't actually know how great it is but it's interesting i'd probably read it it's I, called mapping the mind i think Ooh, i feel like i've seen that cover hold on i've got it right here give me a second <laughs> <laughs> yeah mapping the mind by parker so Rob, did you say robert parker rita carter oh, rita carter okay cut out a little bit so mapping? it's literally behavioral neuroscience put into a kind of more accessible form. I got it so that I could read it before I got here. I got about a chapter in. <laughs> but it's got a lot of good info, and it's touching on the same thing there. Yeah, so the entire reason of that post is actually to get into what Neuralink is doing, Elon Musk's company. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he has to preface yeah. all of it because it's super complex and it's just crazy to think that we're like we're trying to interface with it with machines now which is insane to even think it's about insane. being able to do that that's got to be the best option for ai probably or at least just for extending memory or i don't even really know all of the uses for something like that because it's just so out of realm of understanding right now because once you like figure out how to like communicate with the brain I don't even know what you do with it at that point. I don't even know how you extend. Like, we don't even, Jesus, we don't even understand how memory works exactly. That's my point. Is That's what people are thinking, though, is like you'll have these embedded memory banks. Like in Westworld, where when they talk about the revelries, or is that what they call them? Oh, the reveries? Yeah, where they talk about those, where, like, we'll have perfect recollection of your memories. It's something like that is what they analogize it to. It's interesting. We were talking about, what do you call it, savants. 
Those are super this interesting is, too. So for those that don't know, it's basically people that have perfect memories and can recall like to the day things. Usually savants have some kind of like disorder on top of it. Yeah, because what I think generally what the a savant is their brain is hyperactive in one particular area. That's why it's in usually like a math or some sort of pattern recognition, I would call it mm -hmm. generally. But then they're like deficient in speech patterns or something like that. Yeah, which I guess it makes sense. It's almost it's, like you're putting the energy in a different place and taking it from somewhere else. Right. You, you, there's only a finite amount of energy available, so it can't be good at everything. There's another, not savants, but there's another smaller group that has a perfect memory that doesn't have a disorder on top. Maybe what they seem or it's to have. Less severe. Yeah, what they seem to have is some form of OCD. Oh. So what you can explain is basically, or at least theoretically, that the same thing that's producing the OCD is the same thing that's producing their incredible memory. So it's like an extreme ability to organize. They're able to or organize their memory perfectly, but it, it spills out into the world so that there's that same dynamic is happening around them. There's also like a weird case of savant too, where it's like, a, I want to, I feel like I'm misquoting this, but I think it's trauma-induced savant. If you have a brain, in, like a head injury of some sort, then you like... Uh come out of it and then you have like this ability to play the piano like, like you never had this before but then after this accident you think just hit me with a pipe let's do this joe <laughs> <laughs> so knowing your luck you'll be brain dead oh yeah or, well more more brain than you already are <laughs> <laughs> what nick that happened with somebody who came out of a coma and could speak perfect spanish what? what? I had never learned Spanish before. Wait, what? Are you kidding? <laughs> or it, I, I believe it was Spanish. It was some foreign language. They were speaking a foreign language that they've never spoken before. That's crazy. Dude, that's fucking awesome. Joe's like, let me learn oh this. Joe's yeah, just like, actually, when he gets bored. So, <laughs> so if you start to Google, woke up from coma, the first thing that comes up is speaking another language. <laughs> uh, so you'll find that, yeah, this guy, and I don't know the credibility of this, so I'm not going to bother to say that this is maybe necessarily super credible, but this, they assert that a 16-year-old from Atlanta woke up from a coma speaking fluent Spanish, though he was a native English speaker. Oh, my God. Uh, he had a concussion from a soccer game, and then woke Dang, up. Dang, that's crazy to, to have Spanish a concussion. Like a no, I'm about to pick up intramural sports. I don't know about you guys. Do you want me to <laughs> kick soccer balls at your head? I can do it. Do you mind? Uh <laughs> <laughs> you're, like, you're like hit me good right here you're like right here. you'll map like, out the i got a test coming up i gotta have this this japanese down yeah but just from the <laughs> the quick you know survey of this it seems that this is a, f a somewhat frequent occurrence from comas that's weird that's like, so weird there's all kinds of people alleging this stuff this is from i heard about i heard this is recent i heard about these people that would have injuries and then the injury would cause them to speak in a different accent I thought that. Uh, who, some accent comedian. syndrome. Is that what it's called? This article that I'm looking at right now. Dude, I just read your mind. And yeah, so they're saying that uh, basically there's an extremely rare condition where brain injuries change your speech pattern, giving you a different accent. The first known case was in 1941 when a Norwegian woman suffered shrapnel injuries to the brain during a German bombing run and started speaking with a German accent. <laughs> oh my God. This one, Instantly. three years, is this three years ago? A police found a Navy vet unconscious in a Southern California motel. When he woke up, he had no memory of his previous life and only spoke Swedish. 
I want to know what happened that night. I bet that dirty motherfucker was up to something. <laughs> Dude, I, I can't believe how, how this is corroborated right now of waking up with these crazy. I wouldn't even call it like. Is it gifts? I don't know, because if you're putting a coma, I don't call that a gift. I call it just a change. Just yeah. a moral, a totally neutral change. What seems to suck about it is that this is usually tied to some sort of brain injury. So they almost, what I'm reading about when, it, when reading about these people, a lot of them lost memory entirely of their past life. Whoa. Jesus. And were either thinking they were somebody totally different or just didn't know. Huh. That sucks. So it almost seems like just like a, you know, rewiring of the brain somehow. <laughs> That's interesting because I don't know. I just wouldn't expect that to be like a thing. Do they have to relearn their initial language? Yeah, so like the kid who got the soccer kid, he is relearning English now and is slowly losing his Spanish fluency. Oh, wow. So if you start relearning something, you lose the quote unquote talent. I wonder if it's like a really thin rewiring. Like the connections aren't very intensely. I I feel like you could analogize it to a short circuit probably. What seems to be interesting about it is that these people don't know, let's say for that kid with the Spanish, he doesn't know Spanish, like he can't do it. Right. But he somehow wakes up being fluent in Spanish. What that almost seems to suggest is that he always did perhaps somewhere in his brain have Spanish and just didn't know how to make use of it. You said he's from Florida? I believe so. I'll do it again. So there's a, that's a, he might just be around a People. Maybe article, the article said he knew basic Spanish from school. That's interesting. So there's a chance, but not a very high chance. Yeah. Yeah. So they just say like the parents were saying that he was never fluent in it. He could speak some Spanish. And then after his concussion, he was able to fluently speak Spanish, quote unquote, like a native. Wow. Epic. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's and yeah, that's pretty weird. Call that a wrap, then? Call it a wrap. All right, everybody. This is episode number two. Talking about the brain and stuff and things like that. Hey. So and babies. Fun. And babies. Don't torture your babies. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be a dick. There, there you go. That should just be a thing all the time, though. But yeah. <laughs>